Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host. We come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the privilege this week of talking with Jason Michelli. Jason's a United Methodist pastor. He's the author of Cancer is Funny, Keeping Faith in Stage Serious Chemo. And he's a co-host of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast. I give you Jason Michelli. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Cancer is funny. Now, the first thing I, most people are going to say is, like, my wife's a nurse practitioner. I texted the cover to a few of her friends at the hospital. Most people are going to say they beg to differ. Now, this was not your original title, right? For the, book. Uh, the subtitle was the title I gave it when I sent it in, uh, which is, um, oh, shit, what the hell is this? <laughs> Keep keeping faith yeah. in stage serious cancer. Oh uh, yeah, so, I mean it's been out for a few weeks now, so I forgot it. Uh, so yeah, so that was my original title, and Tony Jones, in his infinite wisdom uh, and zeal, uh, decided to uh, give me the title "Cancer is Funny," um, which uh, I was initially resistant to. My wife was horribly resistant to, um, but in hindsight, I, I have come to think it's the right title because of people's reactions to it. It's it's not saying that all cancer is funny. It's saying that, uh, you know, humor is the lens by which I went through my experience with cancer, um, which is ongoing. Um, and, I, you know, the premise I take in the book is that um, if who God is most fundamentally is joy, then the experience of suffering, which everyone assumes leads you to enlightenment or closer to God, at some point suffering needs to should give way to laughter uh, and joy because that's who God is. Do you feel like the danger, like, do you fear more? Because you've got a book contract, right? You've got a couple more books in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Do you fear more being pigeonholed as the cancer guy? Because this book is for our, our listeners and those who are, of course, going to buy it because it's a great book. It is about your struggle with a pretty serious form of of cancer. And so do you fear more being stereotyped as the cancer guy or the funny guy? Cause right now, like if you, uh, you know, this guy writes in a humorous vein, I feel like if it's like, Hey, your original title, keeping faith in stage, serious chemo, this is a great book. And it's funny, mm-hmm. but now you're being pitched as the funny guy. Judd Apatow <laughs> has a true or false. Judd Apatow has a copy of the book and, and he, has he liked does. It. Yeah, he does. Uh, and so, yeah, I, um, how did so, you how did you get the book in Judd Apatow's hand? <laughs> uh someone at a church I preached at in California uh like knows him somehow, um just through work or, you know, family groups and, and gave it to him. Or when you go to speaking engagements now, are they like, Come on, cancer boy, make us laugh? <laughs> or you're like, I'm not your monkey. Well, it is. I mean, it's easy to have cancer, right? I mean, no one has an expectation of like, oh, Jason has cancer and he's gonna talk now. There's no like definite expectation of what you're gonna bring. Um, but when you have like funny in the title and then you're not funny, like everyone's like, ah, oh, I, th- I thought he was going to tell jokes or something. Uh, so, so I, <laughs> it, 
the expectation of humor does come with a burden. Um, but, but I think it's okay. I mean, that's, that's how I naturally write anyway. Um, I just think in terms of like politics and political debates, set low expectations so you can exceed them. <laughs> I mean, this is a high expectation. But do you think, I mean, you talk a little bit, I think about the, the thing, comedy equals tragedy plus time, which is attributed, you point out in the book to Mark Twain, but really it's a, it's a Steve Allen mm-hmm. quote from the 50s. Yeah, I've heard, maybe this is apocryphal too from Quain, but Twain, I've heard um, Twain quoted as saying, in, la- in heaven, there will be laughter, but no humor, because humor is always based on incongruity. Like, there's no joke. Let me tell you about this good-looking guy meets a good-looking girl. They marry, are successful, and have kids. Oh! Like, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's always based on the tragic and broken nature of life is, what, is the womb, right, of humor. Um. I- I think there's probably something to that, but I, I also think a lot of humor is um, not from incongruity, but maybe, well, maybe like in hindsight of incongruity. Um, or, 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 so, or at least our, the, the, the space between our sense of is and ought. Yeah. Like looking back, I mean, most of my humor is looking back on, you know, what a dumbass I was um, in this situation or with that person. Um, and I know Augustine talks about how in, in heaven there is no memory. Um, because there's no memory of pain suffered or inflicted. Um, and, and I know what Augustine's trying to get at, but I think that's nonsense. Wow, bold. Bold move, everybody. Saying Augustine is full of nonsense. Jason, <laughs> Jason Michelli, he's funny, he's deep, he's bold. Get the book tomorrow. Run, don't walk to your Amazon. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's that bold to speak ill of Augustine in a you know, progressive culture. You talk about in the book, the experience of getting this diagnosis. So first of all, uh, as someone who's a pastor, you had this kind of stomach ache and you had some issues and your wife was like, hey, check this out. Now, every time you're preaching a passage, it's like he hearkened onto his wife. Are you like, yes, I should have done that. <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, the, you had, you, you actually kind of, or like brush some of her concerns off, and you wound up having a pretty serious condition. And can you tell our listeners the story that you tell in the book about how you got the actual diagnosis, and they're like you need to get into surgery like now? Yeah, so I, I, um, I, I had like on and off again, really bad abdominal pains from like July um, through November, uh, and, and they like I would go to a doctor, and they wouldn't find anything, and I'd for, like go away for a while, and I'd forget about it. My wife kept, you know pushing me to to get it checked out further. Um, you know, but, and I would do that, stool samples and like all that kind of stuff. Um, and then finally I got uh, a referral to a GI doctor um, and he sent me for a, a CT scan um, that day. And, you know, with the promise that, you know, I hear back five to seven business days, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I was driving my kids home from their swim practice that night um, and the doctor, you know, has called me and asked if I'm sitting down. Um, and so he tells me, so what, what it is, so the pain was caused by my intestine, um, telescoping in on itself. Like if you think of how a telescope kind of collapses in on itself. Um, and so that was the pain and then that's most usually caused by a tumor. Um, you know, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really ever counsel the idea that, something was wrong with me. And then, you know, my kids are kind of overhearing this phone conversation in the car. Um, and I just sat in the driveway wondering how I was going to call my wife um, and, and tell her this. Um, 
And so, yeah, the doctor said I, I needed to get surgery immediately. So I, I woke up the next morning and to find out they'd removed like a 11 by 11 inch tumor uh, out of me and that they had done initial tests. Um, yeah, you say in the book that this is like the dimensions of a Stephen King novel. Yeah, like a big fat paper book, uh, yeah. paperback. Um, and it was weird because like all that fall I'd been like, continue, I, I was running like 40, 45 miles a week and like it just felt like I was carrying something in me. Like it was just, it just I didn't feel right, but... I just thought I was getting out of shape or older and, and, but it, yeah. Yeah. So I woke up, they'd removed this thing from me and, and they, you know, my wife let me know that like they were waiting to hear back the biopsy results, but it, you know, I likely had one of these five really rare cancers. Um, so I found out. A couple days did you ever say, that. did you ever say like, Hey, well, at least they've got a rare cancer. I mean, I have an ordinary like, <laughs> run of the mill, at least I'm special. Like, I did brag about it actually. I was like, wow. Well, like, I'm not one of these mean, losers that has an ordinary cancer. You just get from cars, carcinogenics or smoking. So I've got something. <laughs> I, I mean, you got to be like, I like to think I'm unique. So, um, yeah. So I have something called mantle cell lymphoma, which usually affects like a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of men in their like 60s and 70s. Um, but instead, I have it. And that means um, it'll never go away. Um, even after, so I did like a year of really intense chemo. Um, it'll never go away. I can only hope to keep it at bay. So even now I'm, I'm back to normal and feel fine, but I do like a day of chemo, uh, a month in perpetuity, um, until it comes back. That sounds so liturgical in perpetuity. <laughs> My wife's a lawyer. I've heard you say several times that in different interviews on your podcast that you're a Methodist and you're a fan of Hannah mm-hmm. Moss. And yep. I heard you say somewhere that for Methodists, salvation and sanctification are almost synonymous mm-hmm. and well, i think there's like if you have to reduce things to like bifurcated things right like if, if there are two types of things i think there are people that are like victorious christian life people or, or maybe like ascent people where the christian life is it is a, a progressive journey uh, onward and upward and then people that are sort of like it's kind of all ambiguous <laughs> you start a mess and you finish a mess and god sort of does the rest is there any change? Like you have this form of cancer that will stay with you. You have like a Lutheran form of cancer. Like, <laughs> like it's going to stay with you. Like, I mean, it, right? I mean, basically, you, this tumor at, at it, once justified li- and yeah. stricken with cancer. Yeah, yeah. Like you're not right. I mean, you like basically you 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 have to check in regularly for chemo monthly. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, and, I mean, it's it's hard to. It's hard, especially for my wife now that everything's back to normal, but like playing the averages and the odds. Um, I mean, you know, it partly it's hard because my cancer is so rare. There's not a lot of good data on it, but what data there is, you know, there's certain median times that I can expect until a relapse. Um, and I already had that conversation with my doctor just two months ago um, about what, you know, what, what to do when it comes back. Um, and so, so I do live with, you know, what's the story in Daniel, you know, with the, the sword hanging over his head. Um, is that in Daniel? No, that's the Or sword, sword of Damocles. Yeah. Sword of Damocles. Um, <laughs> Daniel. Um, Man, it's yeah, all Greco so, Roman and influence. Yeah, that, it's that, Alexander the Great's running around. It's all, you know, it's all, it's all, it's like, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. Basically the same Jews. This ain't the Lectio cast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, so it's something that I carry with me. And, and the re, just 
the reality of my mortality is not an abstraction um, anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's a powerful sentiment. I mean, you, I, I heard in one interview you gave, you said that, you know, you were kind of a traditional mainline guy. It's about, you know, the kingdom now and, and, and building the kingdom here. And like, you know, you're kind of the afterlife, whatever. I mean, that's kind of, now you're like, hey, <laughs> this, yeah, is a, no, it's this, like, is, this is a little more relevant now. Yeah, no, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, like speculation about eternal life, I, I completely is logical and understandable now. Like, um, yeah, and, and one of the things, I don't know if it, if I wrote about it in the book, um, I did on my blog, but, you know, w- w- my experience with cancer, especially the, the debilitating exhaustion and pain of the chemo treatment, um, it made me realize, you know, by privileging so much, like, working for the kingdom here and now, um, that kind of mainline message that's always trendy in progressive circles uh, that I travel in usually. Um, like by emphasizing that message so much, what we do is like exclude people who are not able to participate by rolling up their sleeves and, you know, going out and saving the world. Um, and there should be a role for the faith and for discipleship. Um, that does just require prayer and contemplation and, and thinking about things like what comes next. I want to read something to you that was on the Mockingbird blog uh, from a hospice chaplain from Las Vegas. Before, mm. I, before I do, I just want to ask you a question. Because like, mm-hmm. that's an arduous thing, like going into chemo, I mean, monthly. I mean, that's just, I mean, it, it's, it, it's horrible. It, are you allowed to like liquor up a little bit? And I say not as a cancer patient, <laughs> as a Methodist, I'm saying, can you like, like, I'm not saying for your doctor's perspective, but from your DS and your Bishop, right? like, is it, do you get a dispensation there? I mean, it, it's, you know, like you were asking about what is it like to like get labeled as the funny guy or the cancer guy. But like, I, I do have this, like, this, you know, this cancer sheen about me now. So that, like, before I was always getting in trouble with the powers that be uh, in the United Methodist Church. And now, like, I, I, I can get away with anything. Yeah, let me just say for our listeners, you look no worse. You don't look like a cancer um, survivor and ongoing struggler. You, you know, you, you, you look very healthy. Thank you. So, so this is um, from a guy named Matthew Metavellis. He says, I work as a chaplain for a nonprofit hospice in Las Vegas. Anyone who has served as a chaplain will tell you that the work can be routine, but it's never dull. The problems and situations that you find yourself working through with people in hospice run the gamut from the touching to the tragic to the hilarious. Hospice humor is a thing. Next time you meet a hospice worker, ask. But one thing has never come up in seven years. Nobody has ever asked me if they've gotten their politics correct. I've never heard a confession that someone had not stood up for marginalized people enough. Never have I had to absolve somebody on a deathbed for being complicit in unjust structures. There has never been a long dialogue between a hospice patient and me examining if the kingdom has been sufficiently brought about by someone's earthly efforts. Politics has a way of becoming a non-factor in one's life after a terminal diagnosis. Is that ring true in your experience? Yeah. I mean, uh, and I, and I, I, I guess I, it's not germane to the, his main point, but, uh, there is a dullness, I think, um, to the cancer ward, just like the monotony of being sick and, uh, being in pain. Um, and just the sheer boredom of going through treatments every day and, 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 and the pain of knowing that the world goes on without you. Um, mm. so there is a dullness to that, but, it, but it, it's also true that, 
It's, it's definitely true that the scale of life and death render kind of our political commitments and, and just the bullshit that we argue over um, looks pretty small. And it doesn't mean that it's unimportant. It's just small. What theological ideas or streams have become smaller, which have become bigger? Mm. I, um, and it might be a coincidence of like my cancer ending and me reading Fleming's book on the crucifixion at the same mm. time. Um, I, it was always there, but the, the new Testament witness that death is an enemy, um, that God is determined to defeat through cross and resurrection that that I, I always believed that. Um, but I think that my experience uh, of suffering and, and likely death, um, that it, 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 like I, I felt it just existentially, you know, and I, I mean, I think I told someone recently that, you know, I, 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 the way I imagine it is that like, you know, my blood is like sand in an hourglass and I can just kind of feel it. Um, and so like what became really important to me is, is this idea that death is an enemy. Like death is not natural. Um, you know, it's not something that God does for a reason or to teach us a lesson or blah, blah, blah. That Like it's the last enemy. Um, and what became less important to me, I think was probably getting how we apply our faith to the politics of our context. Um, to echo uh, the hospice chaplain's letter that that's, and part of it is like, I, I, I mean, I, I serve a really political congregation and there's just like good people on both sides. And so I, I see the ambiguity all the time and just the arbitrariness of it all. Um, but like a, a lot of that stuff just doesn't uh, have as much urgency to me now. Is there with a journey like yours, do, is there something like, the relationship between ideas, ideology, and idols become a little more crystallized and focused. Yeah, and and I and I also think like it's important um, to name what ideas are gospel, right? I mean that that's I think, uh, and that's a sense in which I'm more urgent in my preaching and stuff. That like I I didn't get any feedback from people in my congregation, but I got feedback from other Christians. Uh, of just like horrific, terrible, terrible, like mean ass theology that is not intended to be such, um, but directed at someone you know without an MDiv, like could do like terrible damage to someone. Um, and, and just my experience of writing about cancer, I've heard from lots of people who have been harmed uh, by bad theology, um, and so. It, so it's it's realizing that some of the ideas that we hold can easily turn to ideology, but it's also appreciating that like ideas are important, um, and we as Christians need to know how to like speak our language correctly. Yeah, it's so weird. Like you you look at pre-modern theology, like whether it, it, Calvin writing letters past through people with illness, or medieval rabbis explaining pogroms. Like there's just this assumption that, well, God is judging us somehow. Anyway, you know, like, mm -hmm. it, it's interesting. I mean, you read a lot of Carl Bart in the mm -hmm. process, right? Like, you know, Bart says, I think in Church of Max 3, 4, just be the ethic of illness. Like, the first thing, the ethical obligation of the Christian, the first thing in illness is to say, God's not judging me. The judgment yeah. rendered in Jesus Christ. I mean, like, yeah. did you uh -huh. find yourself, I mean, you talk about, like, you didn't <laughs> <That's, yes>. intellect, <laughs> intellectually, 
like you didn't stop reciting the creed, but you talk in the book that like existentially there was something different about your faith. Like you even talk about the Bilbo Baggins thing, like you know, mm-hmm. like too too little butter spread over too much bread. I think I, you know, as a pastor who'd never really been ill before, but I spent a lot of time with old people. I didn't appreciate the the point at which um, the why you know why is God doing this to me isn't a rational or theological question. It's just you know, it's an existential one that you can't avoid because it's just part of the grief process and like your fatigue um, and your pain just prompt that question. Um, and so for me, it, like, even though like I, I have never thought that God, you know, does things to people um, like cancer for any sort of reason. Um, and I, and I, and rationally, I never at any point in my like, experience thought that I, I still get, found myself in the place where like, you know, I was as low as I could go. And then it was just one more thing thrown at me. And I'm like, you know, God damn it, God, why, why didn't you do this to me? Um, and even in that moment, I, I probably rationally didn't think that God was, it was just, you know, like, I mean, I, I, I assume that's, you know, that's what the old Testament's about is like those cries come to the people. It's just part of living with God. Um, and that's why it's important, I think, for people to speak the language correctly um, so that, you know, when you're in a position like I was in, you have someone who's faithful enough to to speak the truth to you. You've said uh, that, I think you've written and said that, that you know, theonomy can be a real problem. That, that it, it, and it, it's part of the problem that, like, in the act of trying to defend God in the face of evil, you actually create more evil. To by trying to explain the inexplicable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think that's true. And I think that's where, um, I, I think that's the value in, uh, you, you were asking about sanctification and salvation. I, I do think, you know, for Methodists, I, I like our participation in a sanctified community is what we mean by salvation. And so I, and part of that, I think, is now, how many sanctified communities are there? Is there a directory? And like, is it two percent of the community? Because in my in my experience, the church is not an original sin free zone. All the bullshit of the world happens, in, and sometimes people are even worse behave in the church. Because like, if they did this stuff oh, in, 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 on a in a church in a in a corporate board meeting that they do in church board meetings, they'd be out running on a rail because you know there's consequence. <laughs> the only person to get disciplined in a church meeting is the pastor. That's true. It's true. I mean, like, by that I mean, like, the people of the, pra- like, we're, like, the people of the practices of Jesus. That Like, salvation means participating in that. And I think, you know, and that's a way, I think, of saying that um, we don't have any sort of explanation for the cross other than, you know, the community born from it. Can I read one more thing to you that I think that, sure. that has made me, as I read your book, I was thinking about this. Um, this is from Paul Zoll's uh, Panopticon, an off-the-wall guide to world religion. Paul Zoll is the father of David Zoll, founded Mockingbird, who was responsible for the mm. creation of this podcast. And this is basically his, his summation <laughs> of what religion is all about. And his appendix is, is religion for the young? And he says, the, re- the wisdom of religion consists, according to this book, of two things. Focusing on compassion and, disat- and disattaching from the self that seems in charge but isn't. Grace and transcendence are two words for this wisdom, and that's about all there is. But a question arises in the transmission of the wisdom. Uh, it is not a curse of the fly problem, but it is an issue of transmission. 
If the best way to understand truth is through the lens of one's death, what about the young? They are not programmed to think this way. It's not built into them. Younger humans do not have the synapses or whatever it is that makes death a real subject. And then he, he discourses on that for a page, and then he points to a few examples. He says, the Buddha was questioned once about his having renounced the world at such a young age. Why, he was asked, did you not first live your youth in its vitality and force and then later renounce and follow the way? He says, the Buddha answered that he had decided to renounce and go out in the world because he was young. As a young person, he knew the, he had the energy to do it and test it and work it. Think about St. Francis or Ignatius. Uh, they started young. Uh, yes, like the Buddha, they had suffered an early experience of contingency. Each had lost something big and had therefore seen. In the Protestant tradition, Ulrich Zwingli, who became the reformer of Zurich, is a classic instance of starting young. But why was he able to do it? Because he got the plague and almost died. That's why. <laughs> So, so is is part of the is the severe mercy in in a story like yours the the gift of getting to live posthumously? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I mean I I guess I would want to respond that it's not just death; it's brokenness. So my experience is a hyper kind of concentrated experience of something that I think everyone has like some touch point to or can potentially. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and in a lot of ways I, I think truth and religion and, and all that, you know, I think it, it, it does and it can appeal to young people because like, I mean, I mean, I grew up in a bro- like a terrible broken home. Like, I mean, I, I was, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I was hungry for someone to tell me like, you know, all the lies the adults were telling me was were bullshit, and that like mm. the world was broken. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think there's a hunger for someone to tell the truth about like just how shitty things can be. I mean, the truth can be a powerful. Yeah, I re- I've been reading Harry Frankfurt's on the truth. He wrote a great book on on bullshit, which is amazing. And then he, mm-hmm. he yeah, wrote a follow up book on the truth, and he says that you know what's so important about learning the truth is it in being acquainted with it, you realize your own limits. And the circumscribed mm-hmm. nature of you as a being, and that makes you uh, uh, there's something <laughs> maturing and, and healing, healthy about learning. That, whereas opposed to it, deception, it's like you're kind of imposing yourself bigger mm-hmm. than you are. So I wonder if if the experience, if like a cancer encounter, like you've had and you're not yet done having, is I mean, is is it like what Frankfurt says about the truth? All of a sudden, you really your limits. Infinitude come at you full force, and you can't escape or avoid them. I mean, the way I think about it is that you know, I, um, you know, like the the practice of writing a sermon um, is always easier for me, and like I'm, I, I'm, I feel more free to be creative when someone else has chosen the text for me, and it's a very specific canvas, so to speak. Um, and so, a lot of ways, I think cancer has imposed limitations on you know, how I conceive of my life in a way that has um, allowed me to notice things that I wouldn't have noticed and, and think things that I wouldn't have thought. Um, and, 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 yeah, and, and a capacity to, to feel that I didn't have previous. Well, Jason, thank you for writing this book and thanks for talking with us. And folks, that wasn't get, a funny note to end on though. Do you want to make a joke? 
But I'm <laughs> Come on, cancer boy, make us laugh. <sighs> An Anabaptist walked into the oncology unit and no. I'm <laughs> I've heard you in, in, in a couple interviews, and I listened to your podcast, Crackers and Grape Juice, which all of our listeners should check out. It's uh that you guys get great guests. I mean, it's a very for people that are looking to get theologians that, I mean, I think that's kind of your bread and butter, right? Getting theologians mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 kind of off the lectern and a little more in a kind of human back and yeah. forth. I mean, I, your interview with David Bentley Hart, if somebody wants to start at a good place at Crackers and Grape Juice, I'd go to David Bentley Hart. Because I thought, you. I mean, he's obviously kind of a eccentric and brilliant guy, and you did a great job. Uh, just kind of, I was digging. so nervous about. I was so nervous about interviewing him. I yeah, mean, it was it was a great interview. He's been so. Uh, I mean, I mean, if you if people read the book, the, I I quote him several times. That um, I became a Christian when I was about seventeen, and then I went off to college um, right after that, and then I had him as my first um, theology teacher at the University of Virginia. And so, like what I experienced spiritually, like was then magnified by an intellectual experience that he exposed me to. And, and in hindsight, I didn't really understand anything he was saying at the time. It was just the message I got was that he's smarter than me and the Christian tradition is by far smarter than me. Um, and I could spend a lifetime wading into it. Mm. That's so often experience with good teachers, right? You can go back yeah. to them again and again. Friends, again, the book is Cancer is Funny, Keeping Faith in Stage Serious Chemo. And Jason Michelli, thank you for being with us. And please, if they just search for Crackers and Grape Juice. Yep, uh, crackersandgrapejuice.com. Uh, my blog is tamedcynic.com. And you can find links to the book on both of those. Uh, you can find the podcast, Crackers and Grape Juice, in iTunes. And uh, yeah. Jason, thanks a lot. And we'll have you back. Thanks. That cold black cloud is coming down. Feels like I'm Good day to you both. Here we are once again into the breach, my friends. I'm here with David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist of all things Mockingbird. If that Mockingbird is singing, it's because of David Zoll and Sarah Condon coming live, large, and in charge from Houston, Texas. And I didn't mean that as a body shaming thing. I just meant large oh, a presence, a pr- presence fine. of persona. I'm really tall, so I'm okay with it. You know, I used to be a secretary at the Diocese of New York. And I would sit behind the desk. And for months, you know, the same male guys would come in FedEx, UPS, whatever. And I had the same experience of when I would stand in front of them, they'd take a step back and go, oh, my gosh, you're tall. So I'm a big woman. I'm fine with that. <laughs> really? You are, you, are, you are tall, I guess. I'm I tall. I don't think yeah, of you yeah, as yeah. tall, though. I think yeah, of you as no, just... Yeah, no, I'm quite like, tall. I like that. Yeah. Tall is good. I'm not Tall's tall. Good. Friends, I stand here. I'm living the dream right now. Uh, I had a dream for like, I think as soon as I got a microphone, this guy, Joe Falk, uh, and I have talked about doing a podcast together. He was a bartender at the Churchville Inn. He was actually featured at the end of the food and drink episode, and we recorded for the first time yesterday. So I, I don't know when we're going to release it, but it was great. And it, the podcast is called Scotch and Soda, his, his, um, 
his idea, the name. So it's fun, really fun. You know, Scott, uh, I have to pump one of your other projects because I think that same old song, now that I've actually listened to a few episodes. <laughs> She's a listener now. Next thing you know, Sarah's going to listen. I'm not only, uh, you know, Let's the president. Let's not get too crazy. Yeah. I'm also a member. The, uh, it is fantastic. So if people aren't listening to the same old song, that's the sort of uh, lectionary podcast we do. It's up every Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I mean, we endeavored for Tuesdays, but it's just sometimes with our schedules. It, oh, like, come like on. Regular preachers don't write their sermons till at least Thursday. Exactly. So. exactly. We're going to get out yeah. today. We're going to record this But it's here. not just for preachers. I'd say it's for yeah. anyone who's, who's tracking with the lectionary, just wants to listen to an interesting theological combo. I uh, highly commend it to your ears and your earbuds. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, that's one of the most fun things I do every week. And in addition to doing this roundtable, it's Jake and I, it's very fun to talk about the Bible and theology and stuff if, with the eye towards preaching. So it's very, um, it's a good time. Yeah, if you're preaching and not listening to it, like, you got to listen. I mean, my and husband, sure. who is it, a regular preacher, listens to it every week and he loves it. So, it's a, it's yeah. another thing that, like, it's interesting because, like, it's like with the Joe Falk thing, although... You know, Joe and I had this idea for like over a year. And so finally we just realized it. But the same Jake and I had this thing cooking for like since last spring. And, the, and you know, we finally pulled the trigger or an advent. And like it was very interesting to see the thing. Because like when this podcast started, we just sort of did it and it evolved. And, and I think like really like Sarah, the first time you came on as a co-host, that's when to, in my mind the thing is what it became what it is now. Like, so if you were to go back and listen to those early episodes, it's just a really different thing. So like to, to develop like something and, and like see it kind of realize is really interesting. Like with Jake and I kind of had to like had a plan for months and then finally we started recording and, and Joe and I less fixed plan, although we, we were thinking about doing this for like over a year. So it's fun. It's, it's fun to be able to see something come to fruition. It's a real gift. Let's start off talking love right we're going to talk about love yeah it uh well today is not valentine's day yesterday was and by the time people hear this cast that probably will be a distant memory maybe a positive one perhaps a negative <laughs> one maybe an indifferent uh just another year going by um I wrote something yesterday, since we're a little, uh, you know, this is being recorded on a Wednesday, we don't quite have all the Weekender links together, so we're going to talk about some things that have been on the site, and one of the things I wanted to talk about was uh, Alan Debaton's Course of Love, which, uh, you know, I, I, I found out that his column, When You Marry the Wrong Person, was the most read New York Times column of 2016. And that makes sense. I mean, it was one of our, the, the thing we wrote about it was one of the most read things Mockingbird did. He was just on On Being this weekend. And Krista Tippett's interview with him on his stuff on love was unbelievably great. I mean, he was yeah, just... Yeah, I, I, I put it in the, in the post that we're about to talk about because it really is fantastic. I'm not sure. I think that might have been an older interview that they uh, it might have been a replay yeah because she's talked to them about religion she talks she, she references the religion conversation so it might have been a repost mm -hmm. but it was so good well this uh this bit that i want to read to you comes from the course of love which we've posted on uh periodically throughout the year and uh from the chapter universal blame if uh, if people don't know about the book it's it's a kind of half fictional half um kind of i don't know intellectual propositional uh, 
work of relational dynamics or philosophy is too strong of a word, I think, but it, it's, it follows this, uh, this couple, Rabbi and Chris Kirsten and through sort of their marriage and having kids and kind of follows the course of love. And it throughout, he breaks it up in order to pontificate a little bit about what it means. And so this section comes, uh, from about midway through right after Rabbi founds that he's about to probably lose his job and he's walking home and he says, the threat of unemployment plunges Rabbi into gloom and anxiety. It would be hell to try to find another job in the city. He knows. He is threatening to fail in his most basic responsibilities as a husband. Today, his walk home takes him past St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cathedral. He's never been inside before. The facade has always seemed gothically gloomy and uninviting. But in his perturbed and panic-stricken mood, he decides to have a look around and ends up in a niche off the nave in front of a large painting of the Virgin Mary who gazes down at him with sorrowful and kindly eyes. Something in her sympathetic expression touches him as if she knew a little bit about the shortfall of work and wanted to reassure him of her own ongoing faith in him. He can feel tears coming to his eyes at the contrast between the challenging facts of his adult life and the kindness and tenderness in this woman's expression. She seems to understand and yet not condemn. He's surprised when he looks at his watch and realizes that it's been a quarter of an hour. It's a sort of madness, he concedes, for an atheist of Muslim descent to find himself in a candlelit hall at the foot of a portrait of a foreign deity to whom he wants to offer his tears and confusion. Still, he has few alternatives, there not being many people left who still believe in him. The main burden of responsibility has fallen on his wife, and that means asking rather a lot of an ordinary, non-canonized mortal. At home, his wife Kirsten has made a zucchini, basil, and feta salad for dinner from a recipe of his. She wants to know all the details about the work crisis. She wants a blow-by-blow account because that's how she copes with anxiety. She hangs on to and arranges the facts. She doesn't want to let uh, on directly how worried she is. Rabbi wants to scream or break something. He observes his beautiful, kindly wife on whom he has become a constant burden. Eight times a year, at least, they have scenes a little like this. When disasters happen out in the world and Rabbi brings them back to the hearth and lays them before Kirsten in a muddled heap. She joins him where he's standing by the fireplace, takes his hand in hers and says with warmth and sincerity, it will be okay, which they both know isn't necessarily true. Here's one of those little, um, you know, uh, kind of inserts from Dead Bonton. We place such demands on our partners and become so unreasonable around them because we have faith that someone who understands obscure parts of us whose presence solves so many of our woes, must somehow also be able to fix everything about our lives. We exaggerate the other's powers in a curious sort of homage to a small child's awe at their own parents' apparently miraculous capacities. To a six-year-old rabbi, his mother seemed almost godlike. She could find his stuffed bear when it was lost. She always made sure that his favorite chocolate milk was in the fridge. She produced fresh clothes for him every morning. She would lie in bed with him and explain why his father had been screaming. She knew how to keep the earth tilted on its correct axis. I'll stop there. It's a lot, I know. Um, But he's dramatizing, as he does in a lot of places, this apocalyptic ideal that we sort of latch onto in romance, whether we sort of unintentionally or not, where we look to our mate to uh, meet the hopes that we used to place on God. And uh, not only to meet those needs, but to um, redeem us from the pain that those longings have brought and continue to bring. So David, what what, what did you get your wife for Valentine's Day? (laughs) (laughs) 
Good question. This is un- yeah, non. This is sort of anti-romantic in a way, though I think it's very romantic ultimately. But I know why you would ask me that question. What did I get her? Uh, she bought herself flowers. You know what I got her, Scott? You would appreciate this. I got her a new iPhone, and it's I got like a that. pink. It's got a pink back on it, which she as as the only woman in a house full of boys these days, she feels like she's trying to get as much girly stuff as she can possibly find, and uh, she was thrilled. So I love it. Good. I love it. I, I scored. So there was a lot about this piece that I loved. I, uh, as someone who is married to a guy that comes home with a lot of stuff from work, as I think most men do, it is interesting how uh, wives, I mean, if you're looking at a more traditional setup, um, tend to be the sort of go-to confessor and absolver, which we're not really capable of, right? Um, we're not very good at. And uh, and it's sort of a catastrophic combination. I mean, we've talked about this before. I think I've written about this a little bit, but, you know, because then men come home and they they sort of expose themselves, you know, they're whatever they're grappling with for the day, whatever failures they've had, whatever makes them anxious. And yet they're the ones who are really holding everything together, right? You know, they have to have the job to keep the machine running and um, just how, just how frightening that is, um, <clears throat> which is one therapy. And I know we're pointing to God here, but the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, this is why people need therapists because they need somebody to talk to at the end of the day, who's not their spouse, who has, who has not a lot to offer them. And who's probably not very good at them in some ways, probably not very good at them falling apart. Um, the other thing I thought of as I was reading this was there's this line, um, everything will have something, every, everyone will have something substantially wrong with them um, the more time we spend around them. Um, and I think, I, I don't, do you guys watch that show, This Is Us? I have not yet, but I've heard incredible things about it. I can't watch it, to be honest with you, because it feels like... Um, doesn't listen to the same old song, doesn't watch I know, This Is I know. Us. Didn't read Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, Whoa. Because, I didn't I know, know that. I know. Okay. I haven't I read Harry that. Potter either. Yeah, I didn't read Harry Shame. Potter. It was like, I went to Shame. Yale and everybody yelled, I was like, this is just like Harry Potter. And I was like, this is seminary. Um, but... So what was my point? Um, yeah, so this is us. I feel like people who um, really love that show, sometimes I think you would really love ministry. Like this is, like this, people have this idea. We all walk around with this idea in our heads, right? That everyone's life is easier. That if we're just with this other person, you know, maybe that that choice would have made, you know, marriage easier or whatever. If we just had this job, if, you know, we see people as not having real problems when everyone is walking around with this kind of internal dialogue that David just read. Right. And, um, I can't watch the show. This is us. Cause I just feel like it's a ministry, uh, that is manipulative in order to make me cry. Um, so anyway, those are my, those are my thoughts. <laughs> Sorry to slam a show. Everyone loves, it's a good show. It's just when I watch it, I'm like, well, people love this because this is what ministry feels like. We learn that everyone is broken. We learn that no one is perfect. We learn that people are all carrying stuff, right? So, yeah, David, it's funny because your piece inspired our um, this recording I did with my friend Joe yesterday because we talked about cocktails and what it's like to be a bartender. And then we said, "Well, it's Valentine's Day. Let's talk. What are people looking for? They're looking for love." It's like so you see people trying to get love or recovering from love or trying to love again. We talked a little bit. I said, well, "What if like?" Because Debonton says, right, that like we should start first dates like by saying, 
hey, I'm crazy this way. How are you crazy? Mm-hmm. And rather than, you know, because he talked about compatibility is, an ach- is, is, is sort of something develops out of love, not its precondition. So mm-hmm. I want to challenge you, David, and Stanley Harris, and David Hunton, who's you've, you've everyone's written pieces like you always marry the wrong person. What if we rephrased it as gift and said you always marry the right person? Because they're only crazy people. <laughs> so, yeah. so basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you always marry the right person because the conditions for a successful marriage are uh, lovability and craziness. And, and everybody uh, can be loved. Uh, some, some are <laughs> more difficult than others. We're all a mess and we're all crazy so like and deeply wounded so like you know you can't go wrong <laughs> you can't go wrong you can't go wrong <laughs> yeah. or you can only go wrong i i think that that's uh, totally the right way to uh, scott i love that way of phrasing and i think maybe i'll start start talking about that way there's there's you, there's because people put so much pressure on themselves when it comes to this decision i mean it's obviously a hugely important decision i don't think it complete it, it it's not I don't think it's unimportant. I think you need to like the person you're marrying. I don't think I've seen sort of Christians go in the opposite direction. It's like, well, you know, it just matters that you know we both believe, and that's that's really it. And you want to say, well, you know, if you can't stand to be in their presence, like, then maybe you shouldn't marry them. That 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 doesn't seem like a good idea either. But um, I believe that once we sort of are able to relinquish, because what Deboton is doing here, he's really just sort of secularizing Christian resources. I mean, you read Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, or you're reading mm-hmm. My Father's Grace and Relationship section. Mm-hmm. He's basically just translating it um, almost de facto when he says, uh, all, we don't need to be constantly reasonable in order to have good relationships. All we need to have mastered is the occasional capacity to acknowledge with good grace that we may in one or two areas be somewhat insane. Now that's another way of talking. My father talks about the reason we don't believe in sort of free will and agency is because of the compassion it births for other people. You're no longer looking at them to be any more or less, uh, screwed up than you. And that this is actually what sounds negative is actually such a, the birthplace of love and affection and rather the, the relinquishing of judgments rather than the formation of them. So I think De Botton is brilliant at doing this. I also don't want to give him too much credit because um, this uh, soulmate stuff has been, been trying, people have been trying to deconstruct it instead of insane. Uh, Cause that's also a, you know, I think a, a slogan for ministry too. You can't expect people to, not be Christians, not to be totally crazy as well. Um, you could just say that they're sinners. You know, that's that's what that's our terminology because it it, it connotes a little bit more culpability, which I think is helpful um, and and combats a little bit of the the blame shifting and the victim stuff. But um, anyway, I, I do I do find him to be a font of wisdom, nevertheless. So happy Valentine's happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> no, I was just thinking about how um I have I have very, very weird uh fears. Like they don't they're illogical. And I know I could go to a specialist and get these worked out, but I've never done that before. But I'm afraid of ceiling fans, um, air conditioning units and and cars exploding if they drive too fast. <laughs> so just imagine being married to me in Houston, Texas. It's like a hundred degrees at night in July when we go to bed, I'm like, please don't turn the ceiling fan on. And I'm like, do we have to have the air conditioning? Does it have to, it's going to run all day. Like what's going to happen. And my husband is like, I mean, he, and then we'll go on vacation. Right. And he'll go over 70 miles per hour. And I'm like, Oh my God, the car's going to go blow up. And he just, 
he just rides a wave, y'all. He just rides a wave of Sarah's crazy fears. You know, when, like when we, when we when we drive to Tahoe together, I'm going to go 100 miles an hour and blare the air like, conditioner in the car. I will throw up. I'll start throwing up. Like exposure I therapy. Like, it's like a visceral. <laughs> oh man, we we forgot. We haven't mentioned Tyler this week. Oh yeah, Tyler. That's Texas, happening. Everybody. That's where we're going to be. Not this yeah. Friday, but the next. People yeah. should come if you're anywhere near Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come to Tyler. It's our third yeah. go round on this, and man, we have an amazing time planned. So yeah. check our website, emberdtyler.com. Actually, is where you need to look. But. And happy Valentine's Day, and come to Tyler. That mm-hmm. could be your Valentine's yes. gift to yourself. If you've made it right, you'll know it It's not like anything you've made before And if you've made it wrong, you'll know it Now let's talk theology. Theology. Well, uh, we're, we're reading here from a, an interview that the other journal did with Carl Raschke, the um, philosopher slash theologian out of University of Denver, who, Scott, I'm sure you've got more background on him than I do. He seems like he's in a cutting edge, a sort of postmodern uh Nism as it relates to um, to theology, and it's 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 as much re- sort of religious studies here as it is theology itself. Um, but he gets into sort of um, talking about the current, you know, um, challenges facing the church, and, and sort of or where we've come, the historical realities that we're dealing with today. And there's a couple of paragraphs that I thought were too rich not to uh, read. This is what Rashke says. The problem uh, with most intellectual enterprises is that they're so bound up in institutions. Many Protestant denominational seminaries perform ecumenics within a framework that attempts to preserve their own heritage rather than throwing away everything about what it means to call oneself a Methodist, a Catholic, a progressive Christian, or an evangelical. Um, announcing a new epoch as radical as Rene Descartes or Edmund Husserl and staring the singularity in the face. I think that once we are willing to let go of our institutional commitments, which is what Jesus did in terms of the history of Judaism, we might be surprised and shocked. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. This is what the Messiah really means. You're staring the singularity in the face, which is me. And of course, the people of his time had no idea what he was talking about, and he went to the cross. Now we're in the same boat. The Messiah is there, but we're missing it. We don't want to look at it. We have too much to preserve. And he um, sort of speaks about how this plays out in terms of identity. He says, identity is not related to the singularity by this, the singularity meaning like the great God event. I, this is how I kind of understood it. It occurs after the event. Identity is like the sociological version of Hegel's Owl of Minerva. It spreads its wings after night has fallen. And just as Hegel says that philosophy paints its gray in gray after the fact, so it is with theology and culture. Yet we go back and we try to rescue or distinguish the colors to keep them from coalescing. We try to ossify them. We try to say, this is who I really am. That's the question of identity. The notion of the religious singularity challenges all identity. Pharisaic Judaism was Jewish identity at the time of the incarnation. Jesus was a singularity. Identity is basically an effort to capture something that has been lost. It's not an effort to form something new. In that sense, identity politics and identity theory are reactionary. They are not progressive. This is not surprising. The Roman Empire was able to manipulate identity for the sake of the Grand Imperium, the new empire. Likewise, the Grand Imperium of institutionalized neoliberalism now manipulates identities in the same way. Uh, The university is probably the site where this happens most effectively. 
But the reason that the Romans hated Christians is because Christians resisted this impulse. They wouldn't allow themselves to be reduced to one single concept within a broad taxonomy. Christians wanted to make universal claims to say that all the other items in the taxonomy were false or illusions, not true gods. The Romans said, well, of course we know they're not true gods. That's the whole joke about it. That's because their true God was Caesar. Their true God was the state. The Romans' true God was secular power. And that's the kind of world we live in today. We don't want to accept the reality of anything radical. We don't want to challenge the global, highly managed, pluralistic religious systems. And so religious studies, you might say, has become as a field, the effective offshore management system for the neoliberal global economy, which forages for religious identities. That's quite an indictment. Um, I I would like to read more of this guy, though at the same time, he makes me a little tired. Yeah, I mean, yeah. When you guys sent this to me in the email and it was referred to as the dense theological piece, I was like, here we go. But I do, I you know, I, I think the, the stuff about... Um, sort of what are we willing to lose as a church? Like, what are we willing to let go of? Because we're, like, grasping, you know, so um, with such tenacity to to what's left and to these identities that we formed. And, um, yeah, I mean, my life is probably more entrenched in the Episcopal Church than anyone else I know. But um, it's interesting in this diocese, there's been a lot of talk about missional communities. That's a very, you know, our bishop's written a book about it, um, Andy Doyle. And um, and it's really great and interesting stuff. But I'll be honest with you. I mean, it kind of scares the hell out of me, you know, like, I mean, because I, because I am so entrenched in the church, I'm like, well, what does this even, what does this look like? What does this mean? And then I read this guy's stuff and I'm like, oh, this is, this is in some ways what, what they're talking about. Pieces like this are why I studied theology. Like I wanted to do graduate work. I, like I, I found it, um, my imagination, it, when, like when I had it, when I became a Christian, it, it, it was this, it, 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 it probably in ways that spoke to family feelings of loneliness, like theology and like some of my new family members and best friends became dead theologians. And like, it, and it helped me read my world a lot differently. It, two things this made me think of. I mean, I could talk about this piece a lot because I like it. And I, I actually, David, I have almost no uh, background in this guy. So I've just heard him in secondary sources. So this is the first thing I've ever read that he's done. So there you go. But uh, it, it, I thought of your dad and James Gordon, uh, your dad, PZ, of course. Um, your dad says something in his systematic theology, uh, which is if, if our listeners have not read that and you want an intro to theology, it's one of the best. It's I, I read it again and again. I continue to learn from it. it it's outstanding. Um, he says we, we, we approach here with Bonhoeffer, probably intended by the phrase religionless Christianity. And your dad is the best I've ever read on this. And I've read t- a ton on this because I'm very interested in it. But um, uh, he says Bonhoeffer saw Christians as needing to live in a new way because modern thinking had pushed out or superseded objective ideas about God. The forms of religion, for example, the objectifying mediators we have surveyed cannot withstand the scrutiny and criticism of the modern. So they need to go. Better they need to make to be made penultimate rather than ultimate. Luther, from his side, demythologized the instruments of human religion by typifying most of them as being forms of a theology of glory, by which we're blinded to the true reality of God, who is always hidden beneath and within suffering. So I think that that, I mean, so much, like your dad in that and those two paragraphs, I, I feel like distills so m- much of the thrust of this article and, and the way forward for the church and for its 
theological endeavor. The other thing is, Jane, I was just, before we started recording, I was listening to an interview Stern was doing, uh, which I can't wait to finish with James Corden. And he was talking about the carpool karaoke. And he was saying, well, Howard, I mean, you know, and I do a bad chord next, but, you know, in 35 seconds, I can forget we're even on the radio because the intimate setting. He's like, but, you know, we couldn't have this interview if there's 185 people going and they're still going, woo, woo, woo. I mean, you can't. So the reason he, he did carpool karaoke was to get people to be themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the article talks a lot about false subjectivities and how theology can be a form of resistance by offering alternative authentic subjectivities or real subjectivities where people so i was thinking of james corden because what he's saying here is like consumerism neoliberal wor- neoliberalism works by you know we sort of technologize our intimacy intimize our technology everything is about consumption and so you have this you feel like a subject but you're not you're an object like you're you're, you're, you're be giving you're being given the illusion of subjectivity but you're really an object of the consumer process. And, mm. so, and so what he's saying is theology can actually, by a, a real theology of the cross that presents people as subjects of the divine love in an I-thou interaction, not an I-it interaction, that is like carpool karaoke for the soul. And so, mm. and we could also talk more about karaoke, which is one of my deep loves. But that is what I like about this article, and I'm sorry, it is, so, it is dense, and we'll throw it in the weekender and slug through it with lots of coffee. This is not late afternoon reading. It's early morning espresso. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about death. Yeah, gosh, heavy, heavy podcast today, guys. Um, we're, <laughs> we're moving. We got love, religion, and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, great little triumvirate. But uh, we're going to last really, we're going to talk about this wonderful article that um, our, fr- our friend of a friend, Matthew Metavellis, I hope I'm saying that right, wrote for Mockingbird called a Letter from a Hospice Chaplain in Las Vegas, which if people haven't been able to read it, um, it's in the slider on the website and you check it out. It's, it's worth your time, especially in uh, our context. And it, it echoes, frankly, a lot of stuff Sarah has said in the past about hospice and uh, some other things we've tried to get at in terms of um, our current socio-political climate, but I'll, I'll read to you from it. He says, I work as a chaplain at a nonprofit hospice in Las Vegas. Anyone who has served as a chaplain will tell you that the work can be routine, but it is never dull. The problems and situations you find yourself working through with people in hospice run the gamut from the touching to the tragic to the hilarious. Hospice humor is a thing. Next time you meet a hospice worker, ask. But one thing has never come up in seven years. Nobody has ever asked me if they've gotten their politics correct. I've never heard a confession that someone had not stood up for marginalized people enough. Never I've had to absolve somebody on their deathbed for, quote, being complicit in unjust structures. There has never been a long dialogue between a hospice patient and me examining if the kingdom has been sufficiently brought about by someone's earthly efforts. Politics has a way of becoming a non-factor in one's life after a terminal diagnosis. He sounds a whole lot like my father, frankly. But this is the end where he really kind of says what he wanted to say. Politics is too often turned up to a volume where it seems like a matter of life and death. It isn't. In actual life and death situations, politics fall flat. It sounds silly. 
There isn't a liberal dying or a conservative dying. People's deepest needs involve belonging, being loved, having some sense of purpose, and experiencing a hope to get through the junk they have to deal with. Jesus, not any kind of idea or opinion, pulls us back from the abyss. That experience of being loved, valued, approved, blessed, strengthened, and given life from the crucified one who has bled and suffered with me saves my life. When I share the gospel, I want to share that experience. I want to share a message that is actually an urgent matter of life and death. I'm not arguing against the sermon getting political. Indeed, preaching and hearing the gospel without entanglements in the law is the most political thing we can do. This is not because the gospel encourages us to be better people or because it results in a better world, but because the gospel confers upon us a real citizenship in a better world that is a done deal already. It is finished. In this world, we are freed from the burdens of being the righteous ones. We don't need to be, quote, woke. We're liberated from the need to be right. It's okay if we're not the ones who have the best plans for carrying out God's preferred future. That job has been taken. Future candidates without nails in their hands and crosses on their back just won't be considered. Free of our self-appointed righteousness under the law, politics can actually be about politics again. We are free of all the imaginary people that need our activism. Our neighbors stop being images and ideas, so we can actually start to give them the things that they need, our time, our cash, our labor, our prayers, our food, our drink, our compassion, every so often our voice, and at all times our ear. I mean, Sarah, you kind of almost could have written this, I guess, uh, or it sounds, uh, but, um, and I know I, I have the interlocutor in my head saying, well, you're reducing politics to something that, you know, it's actually more expansive and some of the things you are talking about are life and death for people. So I want to be sensitive to that while also acknowledging the truth of what he's saying in terms of interpersonal relationships. You know, we had that amazing, uh, who was it? The Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert, I think, was the one who wrote about the refugees coming on the boats. And and uh, they weren't actually talking about how they just experienced a Holocaust back in Rwanda. They were talking about why uh, their husband wanted to sleep with their, you know, sister and that that's what they were really caught up in. And it's sort of, it's like politics are kind of the, the, the top level where people are are thinking about and talking about, and they are important, but then you go down to the next level and you get to sort of your interpersonal relationships that are keeping out at night and your, your kids that are having a tough time. And then you get down to the really deepest level, uh, level three or level five, whatever you want to call it. And that's where people are afraid of death. They're scared of being alone. And, um, they're, they're, there's a, those are where the universals are. And that's what we're always trying to, to zero in on. Anyway, I thought this was a beautiful, brave, uh, piece. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that you said that about because it is life and death for some people, but um, for a lot of us, it isn't, but we treat it that way. I mean, and I, I think, you know, and this is, I'm not trying to throw shade on people who've done this, but when I see all these pictures of children that get brought to marches and protests, and then that gets brought into their little already probably anxious hearts, and then that gets brought into the home, and then that becomes a part of your family narrative. I worry. I do. I worry because there's a there actually is a I think a proper p- place for politics, and I I think um and I know that people say this is white privilege that I can say this, but I do think that there's an appropriate place for politics, and I and I think that when we when we let it um into the the deepest recesses of our hearts. I think it um it can cause so much unnecessary damage and stress. And and honestly, I loved this piece because and I said something like this in the comment section, I think, but 
politics is just now one more way for us to un- outrun the inevitability of death. It's like in the last article they talk about false subjectivities. It's mm-hmm. it's another place for false subjectivity. It's, yeah. a, it's a consumer. Yeah. It's a created neoliberal consumption dream. And so like it, it's Aristotle would say politics is about coming together for the goods we have in common. For us, it's competing egoisms in blood sport right. to, do, to do identity consumption work. You know, it's a, it, so yeah, I mean, I think it's the least political what we call politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I think like death will overwhelm us if we will only let it. And I think that that's good news. I know that's such a dark thing to say, but, you know, I mean, I've and I've said this probably on here before, but um, when I'm having a really busy, crazy day, it is good news to me that I will die. Like, that is good news to me that this pace, that this relentlessness, that this pressure and anxiety of this current life is not my forever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And is not who yeah. I am. Bill, Bill Bourne, I just did a podcast a couple weeks ago. It was called... Um, on truth, lies, and bullshit, and because uh, we were talking about the whole alternative fact culture and how, like, it's we uh, it's, there's a great book if you haven't read read it. It's called On Bullshit by Harry Frankfurt. It's about eighty pages or seventy pages. It's an essay on bullshit. He's a philo- retired philosopher from Princeton. He says the bullshitter is inferior to the liar because the liar has to familiarize himself with the truth enough to cover it up. Whereas the bullshitter is just putting out a narrative. So they might say some facts. They might say some half-truths. They might say some outright lies. That's not the end. The end is the narrative. So, and he basically talks about how you can even like facts, but liking facts is the same as the truth. Because it's, it's the, the, the moral virtue of becoming acquainted with and knowing and even loving the truth is it teaches you that you're limited and that you are a finite creature. And the people that are the biggest bullshitters are people that don't recognize the limits of their own subjectivity and want to make their internal perception yours. Right. And then he has a, so like, I mean, I think that, and, and this is the same with death, like truth and death are so connected. When Hegel is writing like the phenomenology of, of, of spirit, like, yeah, and this is an oversimplification. I'm probably getting Hegel wrong here, but like he's thinking, okay, what, how do I come up with a theory of everything? Let's start with the opposites, God and death. Well, if you can synthesize that, that's the birth of spirit and reality. So so there's nothing more limiting and humbling than the truth and death or the truth of death, <laughs> as opposed to what we live in, in the Rajka article, we live in an age where it's like the death of truth. <laughs> Maybe we need the truth of death and the good news of resurrection on its other side. Mm. Thanks again, gang, for talking, you know, light, light topic, love, religion, and death uh, this week. And next week, maybe we'll talk about we'll be felt. we'll be in person right yeah oh yeah next we'll week be we'll, be, we'll be in person we'll be we'll be live from tyler texas live, live to live from tyler we, i love it talk to you guys next week see you guys there thanks for listening to the mocking cast as always you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website mbird.com if you like what you heard please cruise on over to itunes give us a rating maybe even write a review hopefully a positive one We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson. It's edited and technically beautified by Dustin Coons. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.